the story called The Lost Son, also known as the Prodigal Son. Prodigal. What does that word mean? For all of my life, I thought it meant wayward. I thought it meant to wander away, to backslide, to turn your back away from someone or something. That is what I always thought the word prodigal meant. Until this last week, uh, when I looked up the definition in Webster's Dictionary. What's so funny about that? Okay, so I looked it up online where it said Webster's Online Dictionary. (sighs) I also looked it up in a book that I read last June. Uh, This is the definition that we're going to be working off of today. For those who can't see that or who can't read, uh, or for those who are listening online, what's up on the screen says prodigal, adjective, recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. Recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. Listen again to the beginning of the story. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide up his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all of his money in wild living. That's the beginning of the story we know as the prodigal son, and what a great title that actually is. In fact, the last word in verse 13 in the Greek looks like this. Anybody want to try and pronounce that? Huh? That was close. Wow. It's pronounced azotos. And in the the New Testament, that's the only time this word is used. It's used as an adverb, which, uh, running off our definition, is different than an adjective, but I'm not an English major, and I'm not going to try and explain the difference. I just know that both are descriptive words, and that's what this is doing today. This word is describing. The word azotos could be translated, and he spent prodigally. And he spent prodigally. Recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. It pretty much, uh, it pretty much explains the, the younger son in this story. Defines him to a T. And let me unpack that just a little bit to, to show you what I mean. First, the son was reckless. The youngest son, we see this in verse 12. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Now, the idea of him getting an inheritance, that in itself is not reckless. I mean, Old Testament laws said that the father was to divide up his wealth amongst his kids, and the oldest was to get a double portion, and the youngest then, well, in this case where there's two, would get less than. So the older would get two-thirds, and the younger would get one-third. So not necessarily reckless for the younger son to say, hey, I, I, I get an inheritance, right? But it was reckless to ask him for it. It was reckless for to make that request before his father died. How many were here April 28th, 2013? Okay, good, good. You were. Well, you might remember then, DJ, that <laughs> uh, on that day, I, I told you that a request like this from the son was the equivalent of the son saying, Dad, I want you dead. 
Dad, I wish you were dead. And in that culture, if a request like that was made, it would have been normal. It would have been standard. It would have been expected for the father, the patriarch, to run this boy out of house and home, beating him physically as he went. So it's reckless for the younger son to say, Dad, give me my inheritance now. It's also reckless in the fact that once he got it, what he did with it. You know, he was going to go somewhere. And uh, his father didn't necessarily give him cash. He didn't go down to the local bank and drop out of the ATM and say, all right, give me my lower son's one-third. They didn't have ATMs back then. Now, he also wouldn't have gone and looked under his mattress and pulled out the cash that was there either because he didn't carry that kind of cash. Most scholars believe that, that the father's wealth, the father's inheritance was in real estate. It was in the land that he owned. Now, obviously, the younger son, he couldn't pack up the land into his carry-on luggage or his backpack and, and leave with it, right? So he would have had to sell it or at least get a note of, uh, of right of ownership. Now, if he sold it, he would have more than likely sold it to somebody outside the family, which, again, very, very reckless. Land ownership for the Israelites meant everything. This is evidenced by the fact that eight chapters in the book of Joshua were devoted to, uh, to explaining to who and how the land was going to be divvied out, the, the promised land. Eight chapters. Land was to always stay in the family. Listen to Numbers chapter 27, verse 8 through 11. These are God's instructions. And give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If a man dies and has no son, then give his inheritance to his daughters. And if he has no daughter either, transfer his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. Excuse me. But if the father has no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan. This is the legal requirement for the people of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Keep the land in the family. So when the youngest, the youngest son gets his uh, promissory notes or his division of land and goes and sells it, that is not good. That's reckless. Now, the boy continued his reckless living, and, and maybe this is where we start saying he was living recklessly extravagant, by moving to a faraway land, a distant land. It's no secret that when this boy left, he was disowning his family. He was essentially, and I, uh, forgive me if this offends you, he was essentially flipping his dad the bird saying, I'm out. I'm gone. No matter what time or what culture you live in, that is never fun for a parent to hear from a child. It's not fun at all. I was a good kid growing up. At least I, I think I was a good kid. I, I never ran away. I didn't really give my parents too many headaches. But I remember once, um, I couldn't have been more than third or fourth grade, when my mom and I got into an argument. And I remember it vividly. I, I remember the light shining from their bedroom into the hallway where we were standing before, like behind, my, I saw it uh, reflecting on my mom. And I, I could probably tell you what was on the walls. I could probably tell you the smell that was in the hallway that day. I don't remember what we were fighting about, but I remember most vividly was my mom's response to what I said to end the argument. The argument. At third grade, I looked up to her and said, Mom, I wish I was older because I would leave home. 
Mom, I wish I was older because I would leave home. Her face fell. And in the quietest of voices, she said, James, that really hurts. That really hurts. To this day, I wish I wouldn't have said it. And mom, if you're listening online, which she does, uh, I'm sorry. I hope I told you that on the day that happened, but if I didn't, I am sorry. No one likes it when a son leaves home or when any child leaves home in the manner that it appears the younger son did in our story. But more than just rejecting his family, he was also rejecting his cultural community. The text says he went to a distant land, a faraway land, which is the author's way of telling us he went to a place where there were non-Jews. This younger son was intermingling with the people God had so specifically said numerous times, don't intermingle with. You're separate. You're my chosen people. Don't hang out with the others. Look at Leviticus 20 or Exodus 33 or Deuteronomy 7 for any examples of God saying that. God saying, stay separate. God saying, don't go to that distant land, that faraway land. I tell you what, this kid is being reckless. Not only is he risking a beating from his father by the request he made, not only is he rejecting his cultural community, he's also risking the wrath of God. Talk about living recklessly. Now, we've talked about that a little bit. The second part of that definition we're working off of, recklessly extravagant, comes into play in the second half of verse 13, where it says, and there... He wasted all his money in wild living. Wild living, extravagant living. Most of your translations will read riotous or reckless or loose living. What did that mean? You know, I'm, I'm going to trust your own histories, your own imagination, your own life stories to answer that question for you. When you hear the words wild, riotous, extravagant, reckless, loose, what do you think of? Don't answer it, because we've got a couple of kids in here. Okay? Whatever you thought of, that was probably the case that that younger son was doing. Sat there thinking about that this past week, and I thought, did that boy not listen in Sunday school? Did he not listen to what his parents taught him? I mean, Proverbs 6.26, for a prostitute will bring you to poverty. Proverbs 23, 19 to 21, my child, listen and be wise. Keep your heart on the right course. Do not carouse with drunkards or feast with gluttons, for they are on their way to poverty. And they clothe themselves in rags. Proverbs 28, 7, young people obey the law. Those who obey the law are wise. Those with wild friends bring shame on their fathers. Wild, riotous, extravagant, reckless. Loose. Maybe we shouldn't assume that that kid did not listen in Sunday school. Maybe we should assume that he did, and he knew scriptures very well. Maybe he was just living out what the same guy who wrote the Proverbs wrote in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9. He says, young man, it's wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute of it. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. But remember, you must give an account to God for everything you do. Maybe this young man uh, liked the prophet Isaiah and what he said in chapter 56, verse 12. Come, they say, let's get some wine and have a party. 
Let's all get drunk. Then tomorrow we'll do it again and have an even bigger party. Maybe the kid knew Scripture. But if he did, he would have forgot what the prophet Amos said. Amos chapter 6, verse 3. You push away every thought of, of the coming disaster, but your actions only bring that day of judgment closer. How terrible for you who sprawl on ivory beds and lounge on your couches, eating the meat of tender lambs from the flock and of choice calves fattened in the stall. You sing trivial songs to the sound of the harp and fancy yourselves to be great musicians like David. You drink wine by the bowlful and perfume yourselves with fragrant lotions. You care nothing about the ruin of your nation. Therefore, you will be the first to be led away as captives. And suddenly, all your parties will end. You know, I guess since Jesus is telling the story, the New Testament hadn't been put into book form yet, so we can't really hold this kid to what Paul says in Romans 13, 13. He writes, because we belong to the day, we must live our lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity or immoral living or in quarreling or, or jealously. Essentially, Paul's saying don't live extravagantly, recklessly extravagant. Second part of the definition that we're working off of was having spent everything. And you see that also in verse 13. There he wasted all his money in wild living. The Greek word there, it means his estate, his property, his possessions, which fits well with what this kid was squandering. It could be translated literally as what one has. So this boy had squandered what he had. And there you have it. Recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. The boy was living prodigally. I'm pretty sure that none of you is going to stand up here and argue or defend this kid's actions. I'm pretty sure none of you would argue with me that the younger son lived and squandered his money in a way that was just wrong. I could stop here this morning and and it would be okay. Maybe a couple of you would would have left with some new biblical insight. You know, maybe a few of you now have some Bible texts for ammunition against your kids or their friends. I'm smart enough to know that what I've shared thus far in a story that's as familiar as this is not going to be too many new things. If anything, it's, it's been a good speech. You know, we haven't pointed anything back to Jesus or the Holy Spirit or, or God the Father. I told you I read a, a book at the beginning of my message. I read it this past June, and we've been working off of his definition of what prodigal means. Recklessly extravagant and having spent everything. The fact that I read a book was a huge accomplishment for me in the last seven months. I was in seminary, and over the course of like five years, I was reading about 150 pages a night. And I've been out about seven months, and I have gotten through one book, which is about 130 pages long, and it took me seven months to do it. And that was this book right here, The Prodigal God, written by Timothy Keller. This book rocked me. It returned me to the core of my roots of my Christian faith, And uh, Keller says that is best done in this story, the story of the prodigal son. This book also flipped the idea of who the prodigal in the story is. 
Not only in the story Jesus told today, but in the overarching story of Scripture. I don't remember at what point in the book Keller drives the nail home, but essentially he claims that it is God who is the prodigal. It is God who is the prodigal. Does that make you a little bit unsettled? Does it make you squirm just a little? Does it make you want to walk out? I'm done. Pastor, you, you fell off your rocker. God's not a prodigal. The little boy was. I'm hopeful that over the next three weeks, we'll see in this story how God plays the role of prodigal. This past week, I reflected big picture on Scripture, and just asking a question, is God living or does God act prodigally throughout Scripture? And the answer I came to was an overwhelming yes. Per our definition, God lives prodigally in Scripture. God is recklessly extravagant, and God has spent everything. Take, for example, the hot topic of creation. Okay, Creation care. God put us in charge of creation. Genesis 1.28, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over it in the sea, the, bird, the, the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry on the ground. I think if I were to sit down with God at a coffee shop today, my conversation would be something you know, like this. Um, God? So, giving us charge of care of creation, was that really all that good an idea? I mean, God, you knew how it was going to turn out, right? Didn't you know how much smog would be in Fresno in 2014? Lord, was that just the slightest bit reckless? Creation, the care of creation. A little bit reckless. Maybe we could say God was reckless in his acts of covenants with the early forefathers. He made a covenant with Abraham, and then he didn't require Abraham to sign on the dotted line. That doesn't make business sense. Listen to the story. I love this story, actually. Genesis chapter 15. Then the Lord told him, being Abraham, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abraham presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle, and he laid the halves side by side. He did not cut the birds, however. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came over him. We jump to verse 17. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from, your, from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. In that culture, that was a common uh, covenant ceremony. And when that covenant ceremony happened, always, always both parties walked through the middle. And it was in essence, they were both saying, hey, if either of us break this covenant, may it be to us as it is to these animals that are slaughtered in half. It takes two to make a covenant, and yet God made the covenant without Abraham walking through with him. Kind of careless? Maybe a little bit reckless? I don't know. Perhaps we take the idea of God choosing a people group for himself and saying, okay, you guys are going to be the ones that follow me. You're going to be the ones that obey my commands, all of them. The Israelites, they thought this was a good idea. Exodus 24.3 says, all the people answered with one voice, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. That didn't last long. 
Six chapters later, eight chapters later, Exodus 32 tells us they're, they're as a group making a golden calf, bowing down to it, saying, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. God? A bit reckless, perhaps? Maybe with this group of people? I'm not saying I would do any better, but wow. What about God being extravagant? Recklessly extravagant. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6 and following. Listen to this. So praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered us with kindness along with all wisdom and understanding. That sounds a bit extravagant for a God to give humanity all of that. I love how a different author translates 1 John 3, 1. He says, consider the kind of extravagant love the Father has lavished on us. He calls us children of God. It's true, we are his beloved children. Extravagant love. What about the extravagant love in the the most famous verse in Scripture? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's extravagant. That also takes us to the, the second part of that definition, having spent everything. God did that. God wrapped himself in human flesh in the form of Jesus. He came, he lived, he loved, he lived among us. He ministered and he spent all. He spent everything. As he hung on that cross, he gave up his life, which is all. God was hanging on that tree. To me, that screams spending everything. Was that reckless? To spend one's life on a world that... If, we, if, if, if it ended now, only one-third of it, well, one-third consider themselves Christians. I don't know how many of that one-third actually is living to follow Christ. I mean, one-third is great odds in baseball. But would you be willing to spend the life of your son for 33.3%? Seems a bit prodigal to me, having spent everything, living Ah, living recklessly, recklessly extravagant. We're going to spend the, three, the next three weeks looking at this story in depth. I believe this story tells us the basic foundations of our faith, and I also believe if we really dig into it, we ask God to open our eyes that we may learn something that we haven't learned before. I don't have a, necessarily a practical take home for you, What I do say is, if anything this week, spend some time reflecting on perhaps how you've seen God live prodigally as we have laid it out this morning. Maybe ask God to open your eyes to new things in a story that is very familiar. Maybe if if you're at all unsettled with calling God a prodigal, just sit with that unsettled. I'll be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure where the next three weeks are going to go because I think I know this story but I wonder what God's going to do with it. God desires to teach us. And if this God who recklessly, uh, extravagantly loves me and is willing to spend everything on me and on us, if he wants to teach me something new, I'm open for it. So let's pray to close today, but also to open the next three weeks. 
God, the idea of you as the prodigal may be new for a lot of us. It may be a little bit uncomfortable. And yet, God, to me this week, it it just made sense. I don't know why you chose to uh, allow humanity, to allow your creation so much uh, leeway and freedom in, in the different ways in which you said, hey, help govern and help lead and help guide. And oh, by the way, you guys are uh, uh, responsible with, with his help to bring people into the kingdom. God, I, I love the fact that you spent everything on us. And it doesn't matter what Sunday, what we're talking about, that can be a reminder to us. Father, I I thank you for just today, the way we've cracked the surface of the story of the prodigal son. And I ask, Lord, that over the next three weeks, you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to to what you want to teach us. God, we ask your blessing on that time in advance. We are eager and excited to see what you do. We thank you for stories in Scripture that we can relate to. We thank you that Jesus told the story, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.